Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. And reading then 1 John 4, 1-6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in ye than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Though John is saying there is a lying spirit, the spirit of the Antichrist, There are lying prophets. And there is this big lie. You know, the lie of Christ has not come in the flesh. And the lie then would separate the humanity of Christ, the flesh of Christ, from the deity of Christ. And this lie then is connected to every form of lying and liars in John's description. But the primary thing John notes about these liars and their lie is, he says, they are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. So there's either the world as foundation or Christ. And this difference marks the lie over and against the truth. And it will show up in John's description in one's ethical orientation. He describes the truth is connected to love. You know, 1 John is very famously about love and the love of God given to us in Christ. While the spirit of error not only separates the deity and the humanity of Christ, but it separates ethics, love, from a theological understanding. And so John deals with this. You know, theoretically, it is possible to hate your neighbor and love the invisible God. But John says, this is a lie. Living in God or living through God is the way John characterizes the truth as it shows itself in love. It's a very simple idea. And the danger is we'll complicate it. The danger is we might read John analogously or metaphorically or hyperbolically, according to the world, that is. And we will miss that he is speaking literally. There is no padding. There is no mediating term. There is no emanation from God. 
life lived in God, this is directly through Christ. There is a direct identity between the life of God given in Christ and the life of the believer. And this is directly connected to love. And so to displace Christ by saying he did not come in the flesh. And you understand we can displace Christ in an infinite variety of ways. We can displace Christ through an idea. We can displace Christ through a form of politics. We can displace Christ through the world, basically. Karl Barth was a theologian of the last century who faced Nazi Christianity. We shouldn't say the two words Nazi Christianity, but that's what he faced. And he thought he saw in the German church the Antichrist. That is, this thing that John is talking about. And he concludes that the rise of Adolf Hitler, the failure of the German church, could be identified with a theological failure. And so he comes up with the phrase, the analogia entis. It just means the analogy of being. It's a theological concept. It's a philosophical concept. He says, because we've displaced Christ with this idea that we can begin with the world. That's what's behind the idea. We can begin with the world. We can begin with natural theology. And we can get to God through the world. He says, that's the Antichrist. I think that's what John is saying. That if we begin with the world, we don't get to God. And so... Bart felt that Hitler, the Nazis, the Christian failure occurred because this idea had come to replace the first order reality of Christ. So this analogy that begins from the world, from the being of the world. You don't get to God except through Christ is the picture in John. And so Bart pens what is called the Barman Declaration. The Barman Declaration is the founding document of what is called the Confessing Church in Germany. That is, there was the state German church, and Barth says, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to start our own church. And so they break away from the German church. And I just want to read to you very simple ideas in the Barman Declaration that makes the Confessing Church illegal. This becomes the persecuted group in Germany. Bart begins by quoting John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he quotes John 10, 1 to 9. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold through the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief and a bandit. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved. Jesus Christ, he says, is attested to us in Holy Scripture. He is the Word of God whom we have to hear and whom we have to trust and obey in life and in death. He says we reject the false doctrine that the church could and should recognize as a source of its proclamation beyond and besides this one word, other events, other powers, 
other historic figures and truths as God's revelation. It's obvious what he's referring to. Hitler, maybe the Pope, maybe the head of the German church. Certainly natural theology, the idea that we can come to Christianity apart from Christ through just the world. He says, number two, Jesus Christ has been made wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption for us by God. He's just quoting 1 Corinthians 1.30. As Jesus Christ is God's comforting pronouncement of the forgiveness of all our sins, so with equal seriousness, he is also God's vigorous announcement of his claim upon our whole life. Through him there comes to us joyful liberation from the godless ties of this world for free, grateful service to his creatures. Number four, he quotes Matthew 20. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to have authority over you must be your servant. The various offices in the church, he says, do not provide a basis for some to exercise authority over others. But for the ministry, and of course here he notes that ministry means service, with which the whole community has been trusted and charged to be carried out. That is, in the world they lord it over you. And of course that's what's happening in the church. We reject the false doctrine that apart from this ministry the church could and could have permission to give itself or allow itself to be given special leaders. And the word here for leaders, he uses the word Führer, vested with ruling authority. And then number five, the last one, fear God, honor the emperor. He quotes First Peter. Scripture tells us that by divine appointment, the state in this still unredeemed world in which also the church is situated, has the task of maintaining justice and peace. So far as human discernment and human ability make this possible by means of the threat and use of force. The church acknowledges with gratitude and reverence toward God the benefit of this. It draws attention to God's dominion. And the German word here is Reich. Think of, you know, the German Reich, he's saying, no, actually, it's God's Reich. God's commandment and justice, and with these, the responsibility of those who rule and those who are ruled. It trusts and obeys the power of the word by which God upholds all things. We reject the false doctrine that beyond its special commission, the state should and could become the sole and total order of human life and so fulfill the vocation of the church. That is, the Third Reich wants to be God's Reich. He says that's of the Antichrist. We reject the false doctrine that beyond its special commission the church should and could take on the nature, tasks, and dignity which belong to the state, and this become itself an organ of the state. And then he quotes Matthew. 
See, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then Timothy. God's word is not fettered. We reject the false doctrine that with human vain glory, the church could place the word and work of the Lord in the service of self-chosen desires, purposes, and plans. So when Bart says the analogia entis is the Antichrist, this is what he means. He means that the false teaching that has arisen in the German church is like that false teaching that John identifies and that is challenging the church in Ephesus where John is writing. And I believe that John is identifying the thing, Bart is identifying the thing that is challenging the church throughout the ages. It's the same thing still challenging the church today in our country. When we put anything between us and Christ, this is the Antichrist. Whether it's German or American government, whether it's German, Roman, American patriotism, or any concept. It may be something that sounds innocuous. Analogy of being. The university of being. But what is being said in this understanding is that on the basis of the world we can get at the being of God. What John is saying is no, that on the basis of Jesus Christ we get to God. And to confuse these two things is to confuse Christ with the Antichrist. Now I'm not saying anything that there's not agreement. Everybody agrees there was a failure of Christianity in the modern period that we're living through. And maybe this failure was most ingloriously illustrated in Germany. But I think we're still living through this failure. And the question is not whether there is a failure, but why? And so can we put our finger on the Antichrist? When I studied in England, I went to the University of Nottingham. I studied under a guy named Connor Cunningham. And Cunningham answers this question in an interesting way. He tells the story. He makes up a new word. He calls it me-ontotheology. It's his word. In which absolutely nothing, that is we take nothing, and it serves in place of God. The Fuhrer, an idea, the university of being, the analogy of being, they amount to nothing. And so he says this makes what is essentially nothing something, and he calls this nihilism. Nihilism is the logic of nothing as something which claims that nothing is. It is substantive. And so he begins his story with Neoplatonism. In Neoplatonism taken up by the church, being is a possibility or logical contingency of thought. And God's thought and human thought, don't they all coincide? Uh, isn't the being of God and the being of the world univocal? That is, can't we get to God through human thought? And he says, no. The real university that they're talking about, it actually is nothing. Think of the lie in Genesis. In place of the reality of God, what the devil puts in place is human knowing. You don't need to know God. You can know good and evil. And that will serve in place of God. I believe that's the continual human temptation. 
And in place of life, the life given by God through the tree of life, what does the devil put? Death. And death serves in place of life. So there is a latent university of non-being, of death, of absence. And so Cunningham, in a, I thought was a brilliant book, and I went and studied with him, demonstrates that this is true throughout modern thought. That in each period, in, in the modern period, each thinker, each theologian, each philosopher, they take a key concept that reduces to nothing. That is, when we displace Christ, we're displacing Christ what is essentially nothing. That is, language per se, you know, think the knowledge of good and evil, is made substantial and points only to itself. And what I would say, what I would add to this, this isn't really a theological dilemma or simply that, or simply a philosophical dilemma. This is the human dilemma. That we are continually tempted to displace Christ and his essence by something else. You know, this is the famous, philosophically, it's easy to get a handle on this, with Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. It translates into, I would be through my thought. I would establish myself, not on the basis of Jesus Christ, but on the basis of thinking. And so we can trace entire movements in theology and philosophy. In which essentially what is happening is there is a separation between God and his word. Between Christ and the flesh. Between who God is in his essence and who God is in Christ. Whether it's the word, you know, the symbolic language, law, propositions. In the New Testament, this is called displacing God with the law. And so what we need is not a theology built on univocity, on analogy, on being. What we need is a theology that John is describing that takes literally, we build upon Christ. Maybe we could rescue the word and analogy, but I think we need to do it the other direction. The analogy is not between God and the world, but the analogy is between Christ and us. We are analogously like Christ. Saved humanity is analogous to the union found in Christ between God and man. It is not an analogy of being or an analogy of something else. And so in the same way that Jesus Christ is constituted a particular individual, he's divine, he's human. I believe we're constituted individuals in the same way. All humans become who they are, as John describes it, only through participation and union with the divine life. How do you have life? It's only in Christ that we have life and have it more abundantly. Humans are both created, but we're created and infinite. We're both mortal and made for immortality. And so too in Christ, in the union of God and man, of flesh and spirit, of creator and creation, we see things that really do not fit together, that really are total opposites, 
they're brought together in Christ. And so too can be brought together in us. And so in each individual life, I believe we become who we are. We're created for the potential of being made in the likeness of God. Let's turn to Hebrews, and I think this is what the writer of Hebrews is describing. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 to 3. And he's talking about an odd character that we really don't know very much about. It's a guy named Melchizedek. And this is the only place he appears here in Hebrews. And he appears then in Genesis. Abraham comes and meets Melchizedek. We don't know who this is. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all his spoils. That is, Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, see, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And of course, for the Jews, this is strange because they would say no one's greater than Father Abraham. So he gave him a tenth of all the spoils, and by the translation of his name, King of righteousness and also king of Salem which is king of peace without father, without mother without genealogy that is we don't know who he is we don't know where he came from we don't know his parents and yet he's called a priest of God most high on what basis is he a priest because the Levitical priest you have to know their genealogy you have to know their parentage and it says, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. The normal priest, we know when and where he was born and when and where he died. But Melchizedek, we don't know that. He has neither beginning nor end, but is made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. And this mysterious Melchizedek then, the writer of Hebrews, is saying is a type of Christ. He precedes Abraham. He precedes the law. He precedes Israel as he is one made in the very image of God, made in the very image of Christ. What is true of Melchizedek is true, first of all, in Christ. I'm getting it backward, right? Well, no, because that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. This, that is the truth of Christ, comes before everything else. And this is represented in the person of Melchizedek. Before Abraham is Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is representative of Christ. He's without father, right, that we know of. He's without mother in any normal sense. He's without any kind of genealogy. He has neither beginning of days nor end of days, end of life. His birth to Mary, his birth as a human, they're inaccessible. He has no beginning, no end. He is infinite. Now I'm talking about Christ, but we're talking about Melchizedek. But what's true of Melchizedek is true of all of us. And of course here you're beginning to see, oh I think Melchizedek is a type of Christ, of all of us. He is God by nature. That is, he remains a priest forever, for his being is immune to death. 
He is God and the source of all natural and virtuous life. That God identifies with Melchizedek, but God identifies with all of us through Christ. Melchizedek, who in a manner beyond knowledge, you know, he's total negation of all being from thought. He entered into God himself. He's a mysterious figure who represents Christ and was totally transformed, receiving all the qualities of God, all the qualities of Christ, which we may take as meaning being likened to the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Who's the true high priest? Who's the true king of peace? Well, we know that's Christ, but here it's Melchizedek. And so what is true of Christ and Melchizedek can be extended to all of us. An analogy with Christ, not a natural analogy with the world. Not an analogia entus. As one ancient theologian, Maximus, puts it, you must not think that no one else can have a share in this grace simply because Scripture speaks of it solely with respect to the great Melchizedek. For in all human beings, God has placed the same power that leads naturally to salvation, so that anyone who wishes is able to lay claim to the divine grace. That is what is true of Christ, is true of every believer, that we are made in his likeness. Let me quote again Maximus, He who loses his own life for my sake will find it. That is, whoever casts aside this present life and its desires for the sake of the better life will acquire the living and active and absolutely unique word of God, quoting Hebrews, who through virtue and knowledge penetrates to the division between soul and spirit so that absolutely no part of his existence will remain without a share in his presence, that God is truly present. And thus he becomes without beginning or end. We become immortal, created mortal, but becoming immortal, no longer bearing within himself the movement of life subject to time, which has a beginning and an end. That is, we're no longer subject to the natural course of mortality. We're no longer agitated by the passions, but we possess only the divine an eternal life of the word dwelling within him. As John says, we live by Christ. We're no way bounded by death. Can we call this the analogy? There's an analogy with Christ. There is no natural analogy. There is no analogy between creator and creature. There is no analogy between God and the world, between God and being. The creator is absolutely separate. He's unknowable. He's beyond human comprehension. There is no univocity, no continuum, no analogy. God is absolutely and infinitely beyond all beings. And yet in Christ, in Christ alone, he has brought together creator and creation, flesh and spirit, divine and human, in who he is. That's the mystery of Christ. He has accomplished this salvation for all who would believe. For there is nothing more unified than who he is. 
And this is, of course, the picture that Paul paints in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, and I'll conclude with this verse. In the words of Ephesians, he himself is our peace who broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. That is, there is a division between God and humanity, between creator and creation. But Christ has bridged this division. How? By abolishing in his flesh. Again, they always emphasize it's in the flesh of Christ, in the humanity of Christ. He's abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. What's our problem? That we'll trust in the law. We'll try to bridge the gap between us and God through human words, human thought, human power, human government. That's the problem. That's not the solution. That's the Antichrist. Christ alone brings together in himself, Paul says, that he might make the two into one new man. That is, he's brought together creator and creation for a new kind of humanity, thus establishing peace. Here is the king of Salem. Here is the king of peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. He's killed the Antichrist. He's destroyed evil. There is a law, a symbolic order, a human word, which would displace Christ through a unified nothingness. This is the Antichrist. And this is the word, small w, from which the word, Christ, big W, delivers. As Colossians puts it, Christ alone is all in all. And so the theological tragedy the philosophical tragedy, the human tragedy, they're all of a single part. They're not a separate problem of trying to accomplish on the basis of the world what can and has been accomplished in Christ alone. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.